if I pop this slope, we're, we're literally going to produce a quadruple fatality here. The glaring relationship between likelihood and consequence was born there for me. This is Martin Vulcan, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. You are tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast, your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche world. The Avalanche Hour podcast is presented by VEASAN Avalanche Control, safety through innovation, with additional support from 10 Barrel Brewing, Drink Beer Outside, and Interwest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Hope you're having a great day out there. Maybe you're outside recreating on your bike. Maybe you're out on an early season ski tour. Maybe you're working on your snowmobile, getting it ready. It's probably a little bit too thin to be riding in most places, but never too early to do some avalanche rescue practice. It's a great time of year to dig out of your beacon, Maybe take a look at your avalanche probe. Make sure you inspect your probe and your shovel. Make sure there aren't any broken welds on your shovel. That all the the cord or the cable in your avalanche probe is in good working order. Go through all your gear. Take a look. Get with your skiing partners, your touring partners. Start doing some avalanche rescue practice. Great time of year for that can't plug that enough all right if you're just finding the podcast welcome we hope you enjoy it we put out episodes on the first and the 15th and the third thursday of every month so three episodes a month uh, between now and uh, may or june it's not just me out here i have some great help from from some contributing hosts and so thank you very much to those folks dom and Wes up in Canada. We got Matthias over in Europe, hailing from Italy and spending some time in Austria as well, as well as Kelly McNeil up in Northeastern Oregon, and Sean Zimmerman Wall out of Little Cottonwood Canyon in Utah. So we've got some great help. We've got some great content coming from these guest hosts that'll be being released throughout the season. I've got a great episode to share with you today. I sat down with Martin Vulcan several weeks ago, uh, and we had a great chat. Lots of great insights from Martin. But first, I'd like to introduce Dave Mathis. Dave has a new company where he is teaching online courses about backcountry tour planning, some ways that you can better utilize some online mapping programs to hopefully stay safer and be more aware in the backcountry winter environment. All right, we got Dave Mathis on the show this afternoon, and Dave has a new online course called Backcountry Nav, and it has everything to do with 
um, doing some tour planning, route planning for your winter backcountry adventures in avalanche terrain. Um, Dave, talk a little bit about your background and how you came up with this idea to offer a, a course on backcountry tour planning. Thanks, Caleb. So I'm Dave Mathis. I'm a former Air Force pararescueman and uh, involved military combat search and rescue. When we were stateside, we also responded to major events such as Hurricane Harvey and Katrina, for examples. In search and rescue, we never got to choose where someone got hurt or lost. We had to be prepared to go from point A to point B in any environment anywhere in the world. I created a workflow and a checklist, and I used this to brief my teammates, show them the terrain, and get everybody on the same page of where we were going. I started using this workflow and checklist with my backcountry touring partners before we went out skiing. The response was great. Everybody started to be on the same page and know the terrain when we were out there. That unfolded into me starting a company, teaching more people and passing on my workflow and checklist for others to learn and use to keep themselves safe in the mountains. Yeah, I'm sure most listeners who are, who are hearing this, who have taken a rec level one course or maybe who teach rec level one courses, everybody knows that there's a ton of information that we're trying to jam into three days. And so sometimes in these avalanche courses, we don't have a ton of time to practice with with route planning um, and navigation. And so it seems like this is a great addendum to anybody that's taken a a rec level one course um, who wants a little bit more uh, hands-on and mentored practice in navigation in the winter backcountry environment. And so what platforms are you utilizing when you're teaching this class? So the primary platform is all online using Zoom. And the two main apps I use are FatMap and Gaia GPS. Right now, there's a lot of apps and platforms that you can use. These are the two that I picked. And I picked these with the goal to help reduce avalanche-related deaths and teach people how to be fully aware of the environment they're going into. With these two apps and during the class, you can, you'll learn why I use a combination of the two. So this online course is about three hours and, and you're offering it a couple days a week, I understand? Right now, it's every Sunday, 6 p.m. Mountain Time, as the winter progresses and more people get stoked when the snow starts falling. I plan on opening up more classes throughout the week. Uh, it seems like a great thing to kind of enroll with your backcountry ski partners. Um, you know, like if you normally tour with a couple people, maybe see if they're interested as well and, and take it as a group, just like you might your avalanche course or your avalanche rescue course. Absolutely. So right now I can do a max of three to four people at a time. So if you have friends that want to take the course together, just reach out and we can set up a specific time. That sounds great, Dave. And, you know, last night you were, you were gracious enough to let me sit in on the course and, and I picked up quite a few things and definitely recommend that if, if you need some practice in your backcountry tour planning, uh, this is definitely the place to go. So where can people go to find out a little bit more or sign up for your course? Everything's right off my website right now, which is backcountrynav.com. You can find my contact information and also the bookings page directly there. Great. Well, thanks, Dave. Appreciate you stopping by the show today. Thanks, Caleb. All right. Without further ado, here we go with Martin Vulcan. Welcome to the show, Martin. Thanks for making the time. Well, thank you very much for having me. 
I was hoping you can introduce yourself to the listener base here and talk a little bit about your background, where you're from, your um, your career path, really. Okay, well, so yeah, my name is Martin Vulcan, and I'm uh, uh, I'm an immigrant to the United States. I've been I've been here actually longer now than I than I have been in Switzerland, but that's where I'm from. I'm from like a a small town called Stalden in Switzerland, sort of like at the exit of the Zermatt Valley. Um, and, um, I came to, uh, mountain guiding in Switzerland, sort of in a, in a roundabout way. Um, you know, I had, I had more of a sort of a conceptual love affair with the idea of wilderness or untouched places. And that sort of always attracted me to North America. Um, so I was I was really not very much of a climber. I was always like a very passionate skier when I was in Switzerland. Um, but then I came over here and then um, traveled around and then uh, entered a school, which I thought was like a wilderness school and it was based Knowles, you know, so I took a Knowles course and then a Knowles instructor course. And then they, they offered me a job for $38 a day um, at the time. And even I realized that that was probably not going to be good enough to make a living. And at the same time, I had some friends in, in Switzerland who had just embarked onto the Swiss um, guiding path. And, and all of a sudden, um, it, it became very clear that that's, that was going to be my, that was going to be my path. Um, because at the time that was in the early nineties in the United States was not part of, even though there was the AMJ, but the AMJ was not part of like the, of the IFMGA yet. So, <clears throat> so I traveled, you know, and I had already lived here and had, you know, was married and had a couple of little kids. Um, and so I started traveling back and forth to get my, um, my Swiss guiding license, uh, which I got in 1996. So this year I just, a couple of days ago really was my <laughs> my 25th um or 25 year anniversary of of becoming a swiss mountain guide so yeah and then i've been you know i've been here the entire time and sort of you know guided guided here in the cascades and um and internationally obviously like returning back to switzerland a lot um or or the alps for for a lot of sort of the sort of my my home turf which i was able to sort of combine you know with visiting my you know parents and friends and fellow guides right and and um so you still have family in switzerland and and get back you know every, every year or so pre-covid yeah yeah my parents my parents still live there they live like they live in a town called brig which is just down the valley from from uh from Zermatt it's actually a cool cool place it's sort of a little provincial hub um and it works superb you know because I can visit my parents and then you know guide all the all the mountains I would like to I would like to guide you know it's close to all these sort of very magnetic objectives that people are after they're on you know, in the ski realm or backcountry ski realm in the Alps, or also the alpine climbing realm in the Alps. You know, Matterhorn, Hot Route, 
Iger, Mont Blanc. It's all sort of like within a couple hours worth of driving. So what did the, what did the process to becoming a certified Swiss guide look like and how does that maybe differ from the, uh, AMGA process? I mean, probably the biggest, the biggest difference is that in Switzerland, it's a, an all or nothing deal, you know, and that's what sort of it created in the beginning, you know, it can create a lot of, a lot of angst, you know, but once you're embarking on it, you're sort of, you, you meet sort of like your, or should I say your, your band of brothers, so to speak, who, who are kind of going through the program with you. Um, and it all starts with, it's sort of like in a, in a very Swiss way, you know, it starts in the wind, in the beginning of the year with avalanche courses. And then, you know, goes from there to ski touring and ski mountaineering courses and then the Alpine courses. And, and you have, and each one of those courses is a pass fail course. And so, and once you, um, pass those initial series of aspirant courses, then you are actually an aspiring guide. And then you have to work for two full seasons, um, under the tutelage or the, you know, the supervision of like a fully certified guide. And then you're starting set effectively those courses over again. Um, they're now called candidate courses and you have to pass all of those courses and then you're, um, then you're a fully certified guide. So if you're doing it like all without getting stopped by them and have to take a course over, then you're doing it in like three years. But if you don't pass one particular course, then you just have to wait a full year to take that course and then, you know, uh, take that course over again. And that was uh, sometimes a little bit tricky, you know, for people because I, I, I'll never forget that was, I'll be rooming with a guy in my first course, in my first um, ski touring course, who was a 513 climber. And it was very intimidating for me. I thought that guy's literally going to climb circles around me you know, with his hands in his pockets, but he never made it past the first course because he was not, not a great skier, you know? Um, so it's, it's pretty stern that way. And I, you know, and I appreciate what the AMGA is doing there, you know, but you can sort of enter with different from, from different sides and, and get your, and work your way up into the system. And I suppose in the end, the product should be, um, should be the same, but it was very, you know, I, I, you know, the, you know, I don't know that it's really still like that. Cause like I said, you know, it's been like a quarter century, but I think the general gist over there in the beginning is very much like in the beginning, it's very athletic and movement based, you know, they sort of want to, and athleticism movement and fitness and they want to get that out of the way so that they can then talk about guiding um and then here in the beginning it seems you know the standard doesn't seem that high and it's very inviting and then the standard kind of starts ramping up um so but i think the main difference the main difference is just simply that it's you know it's either you either IFMGA or, or nothing over there. Mm -hmm. You don't have many guides that are, are certifying in one discipline as you could in the States 
you know, say a, a ski guide or a rock guide or an alpine guide? That doesn't exist, no, not in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. You just have to, they consider, they consider your IFMGA, the pin, they consider that your baseline mountain guiding education. And then you can become a, a sport climbing instructor. That certification exists, but it's actually like a stiffer standard than what is being asked of you in terms of rock climbing during your IFMJ process. So it's slightly, it's slightly different. They, they sort of, you know, look at IFMGA as a general practitioner's license, you know, and then from there you can go specialize afterwards. I see. And Martin, maybe speak a bit to the culture of mountain guiding in, in Europe and Switzerland in particular. I mean, um, they're, there are families who have had mountain guides in their as their profession for generations, no? And and so is is that part of a reason for for the differences and some of the nuances in, in the certification you think? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think you know, like the I suppose the the certification was born you know, kind of styled around the Alps, right? And sort of by necessity, you know, when, I don't know if you've ever been to the Alps, but it's, but it's very compressed, right? I mean, for the Swiss Alps are not, are not that big, but there's like a really big variety of terrain, you know, in, in a small area where you could have really high quality or demanding rock climbs actually in high Alpine terrain. And so now if you were to certify somebody in rock only then that sort of can potentially put the person in an awkward position you know in the scope of practice you know if you now have to walk for two kilometers across a crevasse glacier to then go on to like a 10 pitch rock climb is that now rock climbing or is it alpine climbing and so just by the nature of like the topography that they had to deal with this sort of felt like well you know that you have to do it all the rock rock climbing and alpine climbing was just tougher to separate um i could have seen you know you could have easily made it like a ski guide you know maybe a little bit along the canadian side like a winter guide versus summer guide kind of model but for whatever reason they they decided that it was a sort of like a an all or nothing thing but you know these sort of guiding families that you're that you're talking about i could uh i could chat with you about this uh for for a long time it's a i think it's a really interesting topic you know some of like those guiding dynasties were sort of born in these smaller you know resort towns and you know at at the time you know mountain guiding really actually like it presented a how should I say, uh, a way to climb the socioeconomic ladder, you know, um, maybe to give you an example, um, you know, to, cl- to guide the Matterhorn <clears throat> 120 or 130 years ago, they charged already over a hundred bucks for that, which in, in today's dollars is, would be more like, you know, two or 3000 Swiss francs for, for an overnight trip. So, by contrast of what most of those people did 
um, that was a really big bump in income. You know, you, you guide the Matterhorn four or five times a summer and then you can buy yourself a couple extra cows or which then was a total game changer, you know? So it sort of was, um, you know, maybe not unlike what a lot of folks, you know, maybe young um, people here, maybe in, you know, in the earlier days in the Pacific Northwest when they would go like crab fishing up in Alaska, you know, it's like dangerous work, um, but it's kind of wild and cool work and you can make a lot of money and then that can help you do X, Y, and Z. And so, and so that helped a lot of, that helped a lot of like these, these families sort of go from, to be honest with you, from poverty to, to something a little bit more sustainable. Um, and, um, and that is, you know, and that is a it sort of, you know, that is in the process of changing really, to be honest, you know, like there's more, uh, more mountain guides retiring in Switzerland every year than there are new mountain guides entering the game because now there are, the economy is so diversified and there are so many, you know, other ways of making more money than with mountain guiding that, you know, um, a lot of young people are like, well, I don't think I need to, you know, embark on this admittedly beautiful profession, but I, you know, it's kind of a dangerous profession. And, um, I also, I'm home from the family a lot and, you know, it still doesn't pay quite as much as, as it should living in one of the most expensive countries in the world. So, so they're having a little bit of a hard time actually recruiting young, younger, uh, younger guides, you know, so that's, is the, I mean, that could almost be like a separate topic, but one of like the main differences, I would say, maybe in Swiss guiding or in, you know, I can't really speak for French guiding or the Germans or the Italians, but there's less emphasis maybe on instructional um, courses and more emphasis just on mountain guiding, you know, take me to this peak or climb this route with me or let's do this ski traverse and the and sort of like the instructional component which is an enormous component i think in american mountain guiding gets taken up a lot of time sort of by the by the alpine clubs you know the swiss alpine club or the german alpine club and so forth um and then they they then employ guides for certain outings, but they sort of have also club leaders and they take over a lot of this, you know, equally important um, educational component in the mountains. That's not to say that mountain guides don't do educational courses, but it just doesn't have quite as much of a focus as it does around here. Yeah, sure. Um, it seems like they're, it's it's a bit more embedded in the european culture to to hire a guide even if you're quite proficient at whatever discipline you're you're embarking on right um if you have an objective in mind it's it's just i, f I feel like in america you know maybe somebody picks up a guidebook and and looks over the internet for some beta on on going to ski a certain objective or climb a certain objective and 
maybe in Europe, people are more apt to just hire a guide for that. Yeah, I I think that is that is true. I think some of it, I think, also has to do with with uh, just sort of the topography. Mm. You know, when you sort of when you show up in Chamonix or Grindelwald or you know or Zermatt, and you look at those mountains, they look pretty big and pretty imposing. And there's this sort of this this very unknown element of glaciated terrain for a lot of it. So it's sort of, I think the, or should I say the totality of like the impression that it makes on people where they're basically maybe saying, well, maybe it's better if I do this with a guide, but there are, there are a lot of people who do, who do it on their own. But I think the, you know, if you're roaming in high Alpine terrain, um, you know, it's it sort of the, the the, maybe the terrain speaks to the people a little bit more where you're going, whoa, this is probably like slightly over my head. And there is, you know, a professional for that. Martin, you spoke about, um, you know, at least in Switzerland, having trouble maybe bringing new guides into the profession in the, in the States, at least it seems like we have the inverse relationship and we have a bit of a bottleneck of, of young guides trying to become certified and, and maybe talk a bit about, uh, first your, your relationship with the AMGA and, and maybe some of the roles that you've served in the past and present, and then kind of how you see that playing out, um, within the, the current tide. Hmm. Yeah. So I, I came to the AMGA just you know, already as a, as a certified guide. Right. And, and I said, well, so thus can I join the AMGA? And they were very gracious and gave me full reciprocity um, towards it. So, so I didn't ever have to pass an AMGA exam. I just basically sent them my, my, you know, my IFMGA card and they, and they certified me as a as an AMGA guide in all three disciplines and then you know not too long thereafter I started to become involved as an um as an instructor um exam or examiner is what it was called at the, at the time um and got to work with with some some really cool people um you know like Rob Hess um and they, it was sort of like, a, you know, t- maybe a decade's worth of like continuing education for myself as well. But um, yeah, and so in the beginning, you know, there were, it seems like the AMJ was still, had a little bit of an easier time managing all the demand. Um, you know, for me, for me, I, I sometimes had a little bit of, a little bit of, trouble having come out of sort of like the the stern the more stern swiss system where you're either an ifmga guide or you're not um the where the amga in my mind now retrospectively saw it clearly the right way where you know there needed to be like a little bit more of like a segmentation between you know all these different disciplines you can be a rock guide and you can be an alpine guide and you can be a ski guide um 
And then there was even the single pitch instructor guide course. And, and so now, you know, I was always a little bit worried about the dilution of the brand. Um, and um, other people obviously said, well, you, you know, the America is a very big country. And if we want to like bring people on board here, or if we want the AMJ to have any sort of say on a, you know, on a national level in front of the powers that be, we have to have a certain size. And that was, that was obviously correct. So, um, and so now the, they did obviously like a very good job marketing themselves to the public and, and, uh, and now have, have almost like a little bit of a different, a different problem. Like we can't really handle the demand. Um, but you know, in the end, for the guide, the problems remain the same. And there's three problems to make guide guiding a sustainable thing, you know, and that's, you know, that's the, the financial insecurity. Um, and then this, you know, second one would be the, the risk to life and limb. And the third one is uh, a difficult or unstable family life, and and it's and it's and everybody I've I've seen so many young guides come and talk to me about this, and you know, and and the three things that I just mentioned, those are the three principal reasons why Swiss guides quit. One of those three, you know, and it's exactly the same thing around here. You're sick of being living in financial mediocrity or you're, you know, had maybe one too many close calls or you're looking at a partner who says, wow, you know, it'd be like really awesome if you were ever home. Um, and, or a combination of all of the above. And it sort of ends up being that like, then people have to over time, they either drift out of mountain guiding or they sort of translate mountain guiding into something <clears throat> other than that or start adding secondary sources of income to it um which i highly recommend it seems like you've done a pretty good job of diversifying the portfolio so to speak um would would you care to talk about some of your other ventures both pro guiding service and uh your work as a author yeah i mean i you know the sort of like in, in, in the order in which it happened was this just that I, to be honest with you, came, um, came, I came over to the United States with sort of, should I say a bag, a bag full of passion. And that was about it. You know, I didn't really have any sort of plan on what I was going to do other than that. I wanted to be with like this beautiful Italian looking woman that I had met. And so that's about like as far as the planning had reached. And so because I had worked in a ski shop before, so then I sort of latched onto that and just started a ski shop. Um, and it was very small. It was a 300 square foot shop. But, you know, and I, I, I'm serious when I say that. I think a lot of people bought stuff for me because they kind of felt sorry for me. Um, and they just wanted to sort of 
give this newcomer comer a little shot. But so then that started working a little bit better, but it was a very seasonal business. And then while I enjoyed my summer months off, it was started to be kind of stressful to always see like my bank account be at zero at the end of the year. And so, and so then this, this other passion of like being in the mountains started to become um, very important that I wanted to, you know, maybe make a, a second living um, as, as a mountain guide. Um, and so that's kind of how that started to, how that started to grow together. And the only reason why I ever founded, uh, you know, a guiding service was because my bookkeeper asked me if I had ever heard of the term liability <laughs> because I just sort of, you know, people would ask me to take them to the mountains and I did. And then I threw the money into the same account, like the shop. And, and, and when I showed, you know, my books to the bookkeeper, he said, you have got to separate this stuff. And so I started, you know, just by necessity, another, another little business. And then it started, then that other little business started growing a little bit more and they started then, you know, kind of mutually supporting each other. But I, you know, it would be like, you know, it, it sounds like it was all some sort of like a, a good plan of these mutually supporting businesses, but that was, it was all just sort of, kind of happened that way I had I had a lot of energy and a lot of passion but you know pitifully little planning um then the the books came came maybe a few years later when I was actually on a ski tour somewhere deep in the Snoqualmie Pass hinterlands with Mike Hattrop who I think he's been on your on your show as well right not yet but mm, hopefully soon yeah he I was talking to him about um all these tours yeah you could do this and you could do this and you could go here and he said well you should just write the stuff all down and so i did and then that's how the first guidebook on snoqualmie pass was born and then um and i of course had to learn a lot there you know then over time i started to sort of see the the context of these or or how how all of these three you know, endeavors of, you know, authorship and, and, uh, mountain guiding and the retail store, how they can all sort of like mutually support each other. And that's kind of how it, how it went from there. So Martin, talk a little bit about the, you mentioned that you just started writing notes down, um, to start your, your first guidebook on Snoqualmie Pass. Has that evolved? Cause you, you have recently come out with the backcountry ski and snowboard routes of Washington, which is a bit more of a comprehensive book, and maybe just talk about that process of compiling um, some information and beta on on a ton of skiing and snowboarding routes throughout the Cascades. Yeah, yeah. So the that book was was really sort of a redo of a of a book by an author called Reiner Burkdorfer. And and um after the Snoqualmie Pass ski touring book, I wrote or co-wrote a book together with Margaret Wheeler and Scott Shell. Sort of a how-to book. It's published by the Mountaineers, you know, how to 
ski tour and backcountry, you know, ski mountaineer. Um, and then, you know, once you're a published author, then, you know, sometimes if the book has a good response, then the, the publishers are sort of like looking, you know, sort of in their realm for somebody that maybe can take on another project. And so they, they approached, they approached me with this Washington state ski touring book idea. And I sort of initially didn't want to do it because, you know, there's something that is really important to me and that's called, or what I call ground truth. Um, and the, so that, so that the, what you're writing about is actually based on stuff that you have done yourself and, you know, to do something like that for Washington state seemed like a, an enormous project. Um, so I did ask them, um, if I could do this together with the guides of pro guiding service and they then, um, agreed to that. And, you know, I couldn't have done this without, without the guides. And, you know, there, I think there were over 10 of us that really contributed to this book. And it was sort of a little bit of a different um, project in the end. You know, I, I wrote maybe, I don't know, 20% of the routes myself, but did a lot of like the, the you know, the managing of the other written content. Because over time, I mean, everybody has a little bit of a different writing style, but it it had to sort of end up sounding somewhat similar. You know, but there were people like, you know, Ben Haskell and Trevor Kostinich and Forrest McBride that made like massive contributions to this book. And, uh, you know, and other people who, you know, graciously like, you know, Dan Nordstrom flew us around for hours and hours on his plane. And, um, and so that's kind of how, how that book all kind of came together. And I think it turned out turned out quite nice and it's you know you know there's a lot of other guidebooks are are coming out these days and and that's why i sort of spoke to this ground truth um because it's not that hard i mean if you wanted to i suppose you could just go on cal topo and start like drawing lines on a map and then cal topo spits a lot of good data out there and you print it out and all of a sudden it looks like a book you know but to sort of do it what I call the right way where you're maybe pointing out really key, key points on like long multi-day tours. You, I think you pretty much have to go do it yourself. And it, and I, uh, I appreciate the disclaimer in your book about, you know, there's a thousand ways to die in the mountains, essentially I'm paraphrasing here, but um, you know, it, it seems like sometimes giving some information to the mass public about, essentially how to how you could go get yourself in a lot of trouble um you know like where where does the responsibility lie there and, and you know clearly you have a great disclaimer as i as i said but um any any thoughts on that did you struggle with that personally of of giving people kind of enough information to potentially get themselves in a lot of a lot of trouble in the mountains for sure. I mean, that's always, that's always on my mind. Right. But you know, people will, people will go there and, um, and I do want to share my knowledge with, with them. 
you know, and we do love adventure. And so I was trying to sort of strike a balance between, you know, you know, giving people enough information so that they, you, you point out key spots that could potentially be, be really tricky spots, but still um, let them have an adventure of their own. Um, that was sort of the, that was sort of the goal. You know, I don't want to, I didn't want to like over describe a tour, but at the same time, you know, give them an appropriate amount of information. Right. seems like you struck a nice balance there. Um, speaking to that a bit, you know, you've, you've been in the North Bend area for, for quite a while now. And, um, you know, it's at the doorstep of the Snoqualmie Pass area, um, which is within quick striking distance of Seattle. Um, how have you seen the backcountry environment change, you know, specifically the winter backcountry environment if we're talking ski touring? Um, and, and do you think it's the pressure that additional users put on the backcountry is affecting the safety of other users? Uh, yeah, I saw, I saw that question when you sort of, you know, when you sent me the, the questions in email form yesterday, I would have to answer that with a, you know, a yes and no. I mean, the, yeah, I mean, there's always the, the chance that somebody is maybe on top of you, that they could release an avalanche down on top of you. Um, but on the other hand, you know, I've seen it many times in the mountains when there's nobody around then all of a sudden nobody wants to go into that particular terrain you know because they know that you know maybe their skill set is not quite strong enough to truly make the decisions um in terms of you know snow stability assessments so i think you know sometimes having the proximity of other people can can obviously help you, but it can also lead you astray. I think it's a, I think it could go either way. Sort of truly, to be honest with you, that, that somebody releases a slide down on top of you. Um, I've seen it a couple times maybe over, over my career, but it's been somewhat of like a rare occurrence. But but the fact that people feel more at ease with a lot of other people around, I think is, is a, is sort of a fact that, yeah, that a lot of people maybe don't care to admit to, you know, they sort of maybe say there are so many people up on Snoqualmie Pass and, or it's too busy there. But if you actually get rid of all of the people, and have all of these people make their own decisions. Um, I think a lot of people would actually not feel comfortable making the decisions. Um, so it's kind of a kind of a tricky a tricky question that way. What I do think, you know, and this is, I I, I suppose I'm going to come right out and say it. What I think what what is missing up on Snoqualmie Pass, I think, is management by the land managers. Um, and I'm comfortable saying it because I said it actually to the powers that be myself is I feel like that 
it's not mismanaged up there. It's just straight up not managed at the time, you know, and there are enough folks recreating up there in the winter right now that it, there needs to be more of a guiding hand by the land management agencies. Um, and it has gone in terms of managing commercial activity. It has gone from like a moratorium to a free for all. And also from the, you know, the popularity obviously of backcountry skiing has, has increased so much that now the, sometimes like certain sections of the parking lots of the ski areas are completely taken up by backcountry skiers. And this is, it's making ski area managers mad because they feel like they can't monetize all these people who are clogging up their parking lot. And so, so I think there's um, something is going to have to, is going to have to change over the next couple of years. And maybe, and maybe that's a normal progression of things where, when you have enough popularity in a sport that then finally a managing entity comes and steps in and says, okay, so we gotta, we gotta um, do something here. You know, so maybe, you know, maybe that's how the next step of our ski and backcountry ski culture will be born. You know, what I would love, to, what I would love to see is, you know, somebody has to take, you know, become some sort of a, a winter version of the Washington Trails Association, you know, that sort of speaks for backcountry skiers at large. Um, and I would imagine, you know, as to nobody's surprise, it's going to be about money in the end, right? Because it's about parking and about access. Um, and, you know, that takes, you know, plowing roads. Somebody has to pay for that. And, you know, and the, and the Forest Service is underfunded and, they don't want to take, they don't want to take this on. So in, in my mind, you know, this is sort of a, something that maybe the folks in Colorado have done a way better job at, or at least I get the impression there that like all the way at a, on a state level, um, they, the politicians said outdoor recreation and winter outdoor recreation is actually very important in our state. And, and maybe the economy in Washington is so diversified in other things, you know, tech and aerospace and whatever all else it is, that even though outdoor recreation produces a lot of jobs and a lot of income, it's still a little bit of like an afterthought. So, and I think until some sort of somebody at the top, like a governor or a senator says, outdoor recreation, we hereby declare that outdoor recreation is very important and therefore we need to appropriate funds in this particular direction in order to accommodate this. Um, I don't think it's, it's really going to change all that much. And right now it's, it's sort of, we have like a rising popularity of all of this stuff, but no action at the very top level. And, and it's sort of in a, in an awkward state, so to speak, but I, but I'm confident that, uh, that over over time that'll probably resolve itself. I hope I hope it doesn't resolve itself by as a, as a result of some sort of like a terrible incident. Yeah, it certainly is muddy water to wade through, and 
and then you add on a layer of American ideals of of being able to access our public land, right? This is our public land, and and most Americans don't like being told that they can't access it or they have they have limited access of it, right? And so, um, yeah, I agree that this is a a pretty big issue within our community right now, and and some some more leadership would definitely be welcome uh, from the higher ups. I think no matter where you are, and certainly not isolated to Snoqualmie Pass, as, as you, you're saying, um, it's issues. It's an issue in most mountain towns that are close to high density population areas, right? Martin, I was hoping you could speak a bit to. Uh, the culture that you've tried to create within your guiding service and what you look for in a guide when you're when you're hiring somebody, um, most specifically in the winter backcountry riding discipline. Yeah, I mean, you know, I obviously when I'm when I'm looking for for young guides or anybody who's looking for a job for us. I mean, I I you know, I'm hoping that they have like the same level of passion and love for the mountains, you know, that I had, because otherwise it, it, it'll just never, it'll never work, you know, um, not in, not in the long run. So there needs to be like a certain level of passion and love, not just for the mountains, but also for showing people around in the mountains. And I think that's sort of what, what defines maybe the difference between just a mountain climber and a mountain guide, you know, um, you, you will probably spend a lot of time in the mountains climbing routes or skiing routes that are below your maxi- maximum capacity. And you have to be fine with that and having, getting a lot of satisfaction out of sharing um, that beautiful environment with other people um, is really important. So that's something that I'm looking for. And then I'm looking for skill. You know, people have to be, have to be good skiers and they have to be physically strong. Um, and they have to know what they're doing. So, so, you know, the, the scope of practice is sort of like a, it's a good template that I have had for myself, for the people that I hire in an informal fashion ever since I started hiring people, you know, and I'm sure other business, most other guiding services have as well, but, you know, I'm trying to, we're trying to be an authentic mountain guiding service in the sense that I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to commodify what I'm doing here, even though, you know, yeah, it's okay. So like we have, you know, a lot of demand for avalanche courses. So let's offer more avalanche courses, but I'm not going to, you know, turn the entire guiding operation around. Well, you know, we could have 50 avalanche courses a year and we could make so much more money. So I'm, I'm trying to have a complete breadth of offerings in in the ski discipline ranging that that shows beginners how to get into the sport and all the way to high level ski mountaineering courses all over the world um 
So it's um, I'm trying to to deliver high quality products that make money, but I'm not trying to sort of commodify um, the entire operation so that it so that it becomes some sort of like an industrial guiding outfit. Sure. You mentioned the scope of practice, just maybe can you define that for the, for those that aren't familiar with the AMGA and, and kind of how um, the AMGA is trying to steer the community to operate within the bounds of what they're uh, able, what a guide is able to, to guide and what's appropriate for their guiding level. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I think what the AMGA is trying to do is something that exists, you know, in most likely in, in most, um, in a, in a formal or informal fashion in most other professions, you know, if you, so they're, they're trying to come up with guidelines of what an aspiring guide can do while they're in their educational process. Um, and, um, you know, and now that has become now for more formal, you know, through the AMGA or is in the process of becoming more formal in the, in the, um, in the AMGA, if you are a business that is accredited through, um, the AMGA. And so, um, but long before then, I mean, you know, you know, I've always, you have to, for the safety and reputation of, you know, for the safety of the guests that are in the mountains with you and the reputation of your business, you can't send a guide, just hire them and send them on whatever objective you might possibly offer. Um, you have to, you know, give them the right kind of job that they are able to do in a quality, in a quality manner. So, and now that, you know, I'm sure every reputable guiding business has been doing this for, you know, for a long time in some form or fashion. And now it's just becoming more formal through, through the AMGA. Uh, a listener question here that kind of touches on this topic. Um, Josh Kling asks what, what your thoughts on, of what your thoughts are on scope of practice for avalanche courses. And so, um, you know, as a accredited AMGA accredited business pro guiding surface offers ski guiding, but they also offer avalanche courses. And so I would assume that most of your area instructors are working their way through the AMGA ski guide certification. If they're not already certified, um, what are your, is teaching an avalanche course ski guiding, I guess would be my first question. Yeah, I, technically, um, teaching an avalanche course is part of ski guiding. Yes. You know, and our, our sort of like base of entry into being hired at, at our guiding service is that you have to have taken a base level course in the discipline that you're trying to operate in. So that was that has been in place in our guiding service for years. So, so most people, or 
up until now, all people who come to work for us have and want to do any sort of ski guiding, they have taken a ski guides course. So then afterwards, so then that was a given. And then afterwards, if they want to become area instructors, they have to become, well, they have to get certified through area. And so then they sort of by default fulfill the basic scope of practice there. Um, so that has really not been, not been that big of a topic for us, you know, now, you know, the, the question that has come up lately on whether somebody who just wants to be an area instructor should also have to go through like the, the base level ski guides course is an interesting one because I, I'm not sure that it's fair to ask a person like that to then having to go through like the prerequisite courses to get into a ski guides course, which so now all of a sudden they have to take an Alpine skills course um, in order to then satisfy the base level entry requirement to get into the ski guides course so that then they can take an, <laughs> a, uh, an airy um, instructor course. So, so I feel like, you know, for our guiding service, that makes sense. And I think we can sort of then differentiate ourselves as like, as a guiding service who has, you know, pretty qualified guides to teach avalanche courses. But, but at the same time, I feel like if the bar, if what you're trying to accomplish is just be an area instructor, it seems like um, there's sort of a, a little bit of an awkward moment there. And, and maybe... I'm sure the AMGA and ARI are already putting their heads together or will put their heads together about this because that seems maybe somewhat unreasonable to ask somebody to take an Alpine skills course in order to then ultimately become an ARI instructor. Yeah, not to mention that people are teaching avalanche courses without a ski guide focus, right? From a operational management background of ski areas or, or whatever else. I mean, you know, ski guiding is just kind of one discipline within the avalanche arena that people are seeking out avalanche education for. And then layer on top of that, a number of different highly qualified providers that are in the United States teaching avalanche education as well, um, that might not be as tied to the AMGA. So, uh, quite a bit to think about there. And, and I think maybe the take home that you're getting at is just, you know, internal review within your organization to be a high reliability organization, um, you know, and making sure that you're fulfilling best practices in, in training your employees, whether they're guides or avalanche educators is, is important. And, and, you know, if you're listening to this and feeling like you need more information, you know, there's a variety of ways to seek out more more advice on this probably starting with the american avalanche association um anyways we, we could i'm sure spiral down this wormhole for quite a while martin <laughs> um another question i had for you is does your risk tolerance change concerning terrain selection when you're skiing by yourself or with a group of friends and when you're ski guiding uh it does not um, it just the, even though when I'm ski guiding or, or when I'm not ski guiding, you know, maybe I'm skiing 
you know, more committing stuff, let's say, or maybe um, maybe the ski mountaineering objectives start to become more technical, but the risk tolerance is really the same because um, the the acceptable outcome is still the same. I don't want to die. <laughs> Or and I don't want to get injured in the mountains. And what 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 is changing is the are the variables, right? And so uh, most of the time, when I'm when I'm mountain guiding, you know, I am with people who are, you know, maybe not as not as experienced in the mountains or or not as skilled um, in, in terms of some of these mountain travel aspects as, as, as I am. And so then I have to recalibrate um, my risk management through their eyes and see what they are capable of doing and how far I can push it with them. And so, so that I can assure a positive outcome. So, you know, and that could be, you know, and then when I'm going out with friends um, that are, you know, that are very strong, uh, then yeah, I can, I can push that further, but the acceptable outcome is still the same. So my risk tolerance doesn't really change. Martin, I've got another listener question from Peter Tucker. I believe he's a a ski patroller, snow safety manager at Brighton ski resort in Utah. Um, but he's just looking for some advice for younger patrollers or guides who are, are taking on more responsibility, um, you know, stepping into some bigger shoes. And I've always taken some solace in, in thinking that I'm never going to feel like I'm ready to take that next step, right? Like you're, there's always going to be some anxiety around that. Do you, do you have any advice for folks that are in that situation? Yeah, so, you know, if he is working in an official capacity of taking on snow safety um, responsibilities, you know, one, you know, one thing that uh, I think that has really sort of in my mind changed my operation for the better came through (laughs) really through the advice of the guides that are working for me. Um, and that is a, a very well thought out operational risk management protocol. Um, and, and it has like, you know, has, has increased communication among the guides. Um, but most of all, it has sort of set the tone in the morning meetings of like what we are going to do and also what we are clearly not going to do today. And so that has sort of like um, brought my <laughs> brought my operational anxiety levels down quite a bit, um, you know, because my 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 education in the Swiss guiding world, you know, it was much more about like, well, what what am I going to do today with these people, um, where I was the only guide and I am the operational boss. And I'm in charge of all the decisions. But then, of course, when you're working in a ski area or you own a guiding service where there's maybe like half a dozen or a dozen or however many people out there, um, at the at the same time, it it um, really helped to come up with some 
sort of, you know, very well worked out um, operational risk management program that where you feel confident that you have some sort of control over what the people are doing out there. Because you obviously can't be everywhere at the same time. And there's always like the residual risk that you cannot eliminate, you know, and it has, it has caused me certainly a lot of, you know, a lot of sleepless nights and, you know, and, you know, accidents can happen or, or might happen. But a friend of mine who used to be the owner of um, North Cascades heli skiing, his name is Randy Sackett. He, he told me, you know, so it's, it's funny what you sort of remember in the end of, of like, Oh, here's some piece of good advice. And, and he said, well, I mean, at some point for whatever reason, we made the decision to be in this business and all you can do is try to be a professional and do your thing and do the things that are in your power and be very well prepared, do your tour plans, have your operational risk management in order and do, you know, and follow best practices. And then at some point you have to, you know, confront the fact that there is a, an uneliminatable residual risk. And, and it's sort of, it's not like I don't think about this, eventuality anymore i think about it all the time but you know just like randy said for some re for whatever reason at some point we made the decision that we love this industry and that we want to be professionally involved in here and now let's let's do the best that we can here and that's all we can do right doing the best you can with what you got and leaning into maybe what's giving you that anxiety and and figuring out ways to mitigate that as as much as you can, huh? Martin, can you recount a story of a, uh, a lesson delivered in the mountains, whether it was a accident or a near miss or a close call concerning um, the winter backcountry environment and avalanches? Mm. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, one of them, I can maybe talk about one where you know ultimately nothing happened but there was like sort of like a storm going on in my head that uh was maybe a lot of people can can relate to this there was sort of like a an argument going on in my head between reason and desire and that was about maybe a hundred feet of vertical below the west summit of Mount Waddington in the British Columbia coast range. And I was with three clients and, and, um, I was, you know, was, a, was a ski mountaineering, um, it, you know, mini expedition. <clears throat> and I was so close to topping out, but I stepped up above the Berkshund onto that final summit slope and the snow was like as tight as a drum. And, and I so badly wanted to top out on that summit. And, and I looked down on my clients and, and 
below them was like this thousand meter face looming. And, and that's where it sort of became clear to me that if I pop this slope, we're, we're literally going to produce a quadruple fatality here. But I so badly wanted to stand on that summit. We've been added for, we had been added for five days and I was a hundred feet below the summit. And so there was like this kind of intense turmoil. It seems silly, right? Like when you're telling the story now, of course you have to turn around because if you're not sure about the snow stability, then you're not sure about the snow stability, but the, but the magnetism to stand on top of that summit was really strong, you know, and I don't know whether it was ego that I wanted to like be able to say that I summited this with people most likely. Um, but the, the, sort of like the glaring relationship between likelihood and consequence was born there for me. And it was like a sort of like a life altering moment for me where I asked myself, I stood there above my clients for 15 minutes, just talking to myself. Um, it, that's how long it took me to talk myself out of going up this measly 45 degree slope. Um, and, uh, and I came up with a, some sort of like a a um, 75% probability that the slope was not going to pop. And, and finally, all of a sudden, some, I had some finally had a lucid moment where I said, what are you doing? Would you literally pull the trigger on a gun that has like four, that has three blanks and one, and one live round in it? That is, this is crazy. And all of a sudden, it was very clear to me that I needed to turn around. And I was sort of like absolved from this sort of very strong emotion of wanting to, wanting to stand on top. And, and it helped me then develop this, um, this uh, matrix where I was able to start categorizing um, the contributing factors to a hazard into like something that contributes to the likelihood or the consequence of something playing out. And what came out then was actually a numerical value. And, and it helped me um, sort of disassociate myself emotionally from the decision-making process. It was sort of a formula that I was able like a very basic small formula that I was able to plug in while I'm in the mountains and I sort of let the numbers play out and then step back and say, well, okay, we're, we're approaching a dangerous decision right here. And that really, um, really helped me um, to sort of become a calmer decision maker in the mountains because, you know, everybody I think has sort of like their Achilles heel in terms of where they might make mistakes in the mountains. And for me, you know, the sort of like the desire to stand on top was was very strong. The desire to complete a route or the desire to summit a climb was was very strong, um, and that can obviously, you know, <clears throat> be be bad in the end. Did it have anything to do with client expectation, or was that not part of it? Mm -mm. No, not this not this time. It it had to do with um self-imposed expectations to maybe profile myself 
in front of myself or in front of my clients. The clients were like, <laughs> when I finally said, we're turning around, they were like, thank God. I thought you were never going to come back down. And is this process something that you've recreated in, in other times in your career and in, in assessing decision-making, you know, do you still use that probability? Yeah, I use it. I use it all the time, actually. And, you know, I've been able to, um, to refine it over time and then got invited to speak to it a couple of times and had some really interesting experiences regarding this. Um, at some, you know, at several risk management conferences where, you know, people talk about financial risk or this other person um, was talking about um, national security risk. And I was talking to risk about, about risk and life of life and limb and, you know, and, um, and frankly, as it, as it turned out, it's all the same thing. It's always the same variables with, you know, you're just dealing with, um, with sort of, you know, a slightly different field of risk management. Um, it was, it was very uh, heartening to be able to, to hear that from, from somebody. The, the other sort of the keynote speaker in this conference was um, um, Mr. Robert Gates. He, w- he used to be the secretary of defense and he was the ex director of CIA. And of course, he, <laughs> you know, we're talking about like, well, should I cross this slope and is this going to kill me? Don't step here. You're going to slip and we're going to have issues or should we embark today on a high avalanche risk day? And those guys, he, he was like, well, we're, you know, we're talking about, should we invade North Korea or should we not? And I said, well, this is insane. And he's like, well, he, he told me it's the variables of like, whether it's contributing to the likelihood of the hazard playing out or the consequence of what happens when it plays out. It's always, it's always the same game. You're just, you have to be able to disassociate yourself emotionally so that you can see what these variables really are and then categorize them in the right in the right side so so i thought that was it's actually like one of the more interesting components of my sort of later um risk management life because risk is risk in the end what what i took home from that is is trying to take the emotion out of it right yeah, I think you have to, you know, and, and maybe other people are are not quite as emotional, but I am sort of a I'm, I'm a fairly passion driven person, and so I I had to learn for myself to to recognize that as something that is a driving force in my businesses um, that creates, you know, I mean, I certainly. That, that creates successes, you know, I mean, I'm in, in my, in my little world, you know, writing these books was, was successful. And I mean, I certainly didn't come up with some sort of like a great financial matrix and say, Oh my God, this is going to be the next Harry Potter book. And I'm going to make a million dollars. This is just a passion driven thing. Um, and that's why I did it irrelevant of whether there was going to be any money or not. But, um, but that can also, so it can be a very positive force, but, but the, but it can also be something that sort of, you know, sort of hampers your good judgment. Um, and so I had to like, I had to recognize that, that that is, you know, maybe my strength and my weakness. 
and and so for me to to come up with some sort of a of you know a tool that um that lets yeah that creates a sort of emotional disassociation in the mountains for for tricky decision making uh was pretty important you know and 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 that's somewhat different but it, but it's not really that different from the operational risk management thing that happens maybe before you leave um into the field because that's frankly why these decisions in operational risk management are made in the comfort of your nice office because you're not as emotionally involved yet um the 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 likelihood consequence matrix that i came up with is is a little bit more is further down the line in the field maybe when when sort of certain operational um guidelines are no longer present or they potentially fail operating in the gray zone operating in the gray zone and that's why i actually had a had a really you know interesting time talking to you know people who you know who are in the financial world and have to sort of make high consequence decision under time duress you know they were they seem to be really into into this matrix whereas one time i talked um to a person about this that was in the medical industry um to you know they decided on in in the risk management realm of like well should this now come on to the market this particular product or not and it didn't really work for them that much because you know they i don't want to say they have all the time in the world but but they don't need there's nobody you know um putting an enormous amount of time pressure on them saying you know in the next i mean there is time pressure there was time pressure to come up with like a covid-19 vaccine but it wasn't like you're going to have to come up with a decision here like in the next 60 seconds or we're going to have some serious issues and that's and that's obviously something that that um can ail a lot of ski guides or mountain guides because you're sort of you know you can't stand on the side of a slope or at the top of a couloir and form a subcommittee and then talk about it for a week you have to kind of at some point you kind of have to say okay well we're either we're doing this or we're not doing this and that's and that's where this um this uh this matrix has uh, has proven useful for me in a nutshell you have you have a you know you have to recognize what the hazard is right um so let's say you're standing on top of like a really icy slope um that has like a has a cliff below it um and so now you can stand up there you know and say well wow this is really this looks really dangerous and that that's true but what is actually the, the hazard here so the hazard would be that you're you know a slip and fall that's the that's the hazard and so now you know you have these different variables that then contribute to um this slip and fall happening and then there's other variables that you know contribute to um the 
the severity of the consequence. So if you, for example, have like a, an icy slope that then after 50 feet mellows out into like a totally flat powdery slope, well then, you know, the consequence is probably not going to be that big. And if, but if you have the same exact icy slope that then ends up in a thousand foot cliff, well then all of a sudden your consequence is a lot, is a lot higher. And so then I gave a numerical scale for the variables that contribute to likelihood from zero to five. And then the same thing on the like on the consequence side, and you sort of categorize these contributing factors um, onto both sides and then, um, you know, and then assign a numerical value on both sides from, from one to five. Um, and then when you're done with that, then you add both of those numerical values on the likelihood and the consequence side together. And if you are coming up with a value that is approaching six or greater, you're about to make a dangerous decision simply because let's say you're skiing on a high hazard day, you're skiing this 40 degree slope that has a thousand foot cliff below it. Um, the only reason or you're, you're skiing a 40 degree slope with a thousand foot cliff below it. Um, a fall would result in certain deaths. So now you already have like a sky high consequence. The only reason why you would now ski it is because you're such a superb skier with superb equipment that you have like a very high degree of certainty that it's really unlikely that this hazard will play out. So you can assign a very low number on that side. Right. And so now you add those two together, it's still a no fall zone because it adds up to, you know, it's a no fall zone, but you know, you go like five and you, on the other side, it's a one. Now it's a six and sort of maybe to hark back to the question earlier, how do I, is my risk tolerance different for myself than it is for other people? If I now have a person with me that is maybe not that skilled of a skier, now the likelihood of a fall goes up it's now maybe if, if I cannot say that it's one anymore, now it's, well, it's two or greater and you add the numbers up. Now you're above six and now you have like, now you're definitely making a dangerous decision. And so now the, the, the key is that you now in the mountains can do the appropriate amount of bookkeeping to keep that number below six. And that might be, it might be something as simple as like, well, you have to turn around or maybe in a ski mountaineering context, maybe you have like ropes, crampons, harness and all that stuff. And now all you're doing is like, you're just lowering the person down and now there's no stress. The, the consequence side here is still the same, but you can, you can manage um, the, you know, you can manage the likelihood side. Whereas maybe let's say, I've seen it in a lot of ski areas in, uh, you know, um, in Switzerland where they have like these slopes that, you know, where somebody falls and if you fall, then you go over up over a cliff. Well, they actually like start manipulating the consequence side by literally putting netting on, on that side. Right. So like the consequence is that you just land in a net on the side there of the ski slope because they don't have as much influence over who is skiing that slope or not. And so, um, 
So you can, and then truly the glaring red flag is, you know, and I've done this plenty in my life and I'm just not so willing to do it anymore when you're adding it up and it's like, yup, here's a three on the likelihood side. And there's definitely a four, you could get severely injured on the consequence side. But I want it so bad, I'm just going to do it anyway. And those those days are just over for me, you know, because I've at least I hope I hope they are because um, I've made it this far. <laughs> so but but it really like, um, you know, it's a pretty it's a pretty simple formula, but um, the the ability to actually attribute the variables is one skill, but it really just I, I've said it before, but sort of the what the the result that you sort of help just to create this emotional disassociation from it for me it's like no don't do this you're you're about to do something very dangerous so you better come up with something better and it also helped me to then justify sometimes in front of myself or in front of the clients that it's just time to turn around well, that seems super helpful in um, operating in the gray area. And I think I think our brains often grasp for something tangible like a number. And, and that seems like certainly helped you over your career. And I'm sure other people find that helpful. I, I find myself struggling a little bit when I walk out the door with a great plan and a run list. And okay, I know I'm not going to go ski here. These runs are open. This is the identified hazard for the day. Um, and then in, invariably, I, I often find myself in that gray area and kind of feeling like that morning plan isn't really helping me out at that, at that time, right? Whether conditions are different or weather events coming in and just changing conditions, right? And so um, that seems like a very useful tool that that uh, I appreciate you sharing, Martin. Well, it's been great having you on the show, and and I appreciate all the insight that you've you've brought to the community here. For the listeners out there, um, you'll be doing yourself a favor if you check out one of the books that Martin's co-authored, either Backcountry Skiing Skills for Ski Touring and Ski Mountaineering, uh, authored with Scott Shell and Margaret Wheeler, or his guidebook. Um, the Washington Backcountry Ski and Snowboard Routes, written by Martin and the guides at Pro Guiding Service. If you're ever in North Bend, make sure to swing by the shop. You'll likely see Martin um, interacting with customers and clients there, and oftentimes with a espresso in hand. Isn't that right? Oh yeah, that's you know i just uh in, in the process of creating a you know a midlife crisis present for myself where um either today or tomorrow i'm actually going to buy a commercial espresso machine and we're building a coffee bar in our um in our ski shop um it's a coffee is a you know as i think for so many other mountain guides and or mountain professionals is like a very large topic um but uh yeah, so within within a month or so, we'll have like a cool little espresso bar in our store. So please stop on by. Yeah, I've only been there a couple times, but it seems like a community hub within North Bend for the for the mountain community at least. So um, it's very inviting and and a, and a great shop to boot. Chances are they'll 
have what you need there if if you're in search of any gear. Yeah, thank you. All right. Well, be well, Martin, and have a good winter. Hope to see you out there on the skin track at some point. Sounds good, Caleb. Thank you very much for having, for having me on your show. Absolutely. Cheers. Hey, thanks for listening today, everybody. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe to it and tell a friend. If you want to go a step further, we'd love it if you rated and reviewed the show on Apple Podcasts pretty simple to do i bet you can figure it out give us a follow on the socials we are at the avalanche hour podcast on facebook and instagram our artwork was created by mike t you man t music on today's episode was by age diamante we've got some additional advertising opportunities on the podcast if you or somebody you know has an organization or a business that you'd like to have an ad on the show, please reach out. We can chat some details. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers.